0: Welcome to Industry Leader's Journey, where we explore the lives and careers of conscious leaders who are making a positive impact on this world while they transform the supply chain and procurement business. My name is Su Shim. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Bob Murphy, Chief Procurement Officer of IBM. Bob was born in Scotland and has enjoyed a 45-year career at IBM, beginning his professional journey in engineering before discovering his passion for procurement. You will discover Bob's personal journey from humble beginnings, his perspective on data and ESG, and his philosophies on leadership and self-mastery, and much more. Let's begin this journey. Good morning, Bob. How are you? It's been a while, a little bit. (laughs) So I'm so happy to have you on our podcast, Industry Leaders Journey. Thank you so much for joining us. I cannot wait to tell your journey, amazing stories, last 45 years in IBM and even before. So I have lots of questions today. Are you ready?
1: I'm ready, Sue. So let's go.
0: <laughs> okay, I want to start from the beginning. So I think you have some accents. So where are you from? Tell me about some early experiences in your childhood and then the inspiration that formed your personal journey, like how you became who you are.
1: So very observant. I have <laughs> a strong Scottish accent. So I'm Scottish. I actually live in North Carolina since 2001 and you mentioned already I've been with IBM for 45 years so I joined when I was 17 years old so you can figure out what oh. I am. <laughs> and before I joined IBM I was born in a town called Greenock and spent you know, my kind of formative years there. You know, I had interesting experience. I joined IBM and they were looking for leaders. They actually were part of forming a course with Strathclyde University to bring business leaders to the front from kind of the Scottish environment and particularly bringing people who, let me say, hadn't had the most wonderful background. So IBM had a sponsorship, so there was financial incentives. And at that time, you know, we didn't have a lot of money in my family. My parents had been divorced from an early age for me, and we didn't have a lot of money. In fact, I had two or three jobs that I was working on whilst I was in school trying to help out the family. So brand new course, Sponsored by IBM. It was actually called Manufacturing Sciences Engineering Master's degree. So I was really excited to get the opportunity to get into that role, not only because I would get a great education, but because the money was going to be there and it was going to be sponsored. Otherwise, it would have been very difficult for me to get into that environment. So I had, let's say, a challenging background prior to joining IBM. I have to say, once I joined IBM, things rapidly changed, and you know, IBM's one of the most iconic and best companies in the world, and I've stayed there for 45 years.
0: So I can understand because I was very curious: who stays in one company for 45 years and why? <laughs> so because you have very special connection, and they really open the door for you. So it sounds like then seventy is really young. So you literally they shaped you as an adult. <laughs> And you I guess gone through the school and then work and learn about the IBM. That's how it came. I must have been competitive to be selected. Like why do you think they select you?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, when my mom was talking to me, I said, Mom, you know, IBM's not gonna select me. I mean, I I come from a, you know, a difficult background here. We don't have any money. When I went to the selection processes, you know, everyone had nice tailored suits on, or a lot of the people did. I had my school uniform on, and I came home and I said to my mum, you know, oh, I don't think I'm going to get selected. And she said, listen, IBM's a great company. They're going to see that you're a very capable and smart person, and they'll make the right decision. And I was amazed when they actually hired me, to be honest. And that was like best day, a seminal moment in the life of myself. And I haven't looked back. And as you say, I mean, I've been here for 45 years. I love IBM. They've been a phenomenal company to me, offered lots of opportunities. I'm sure we'll get into all of that discussion. And the other thing about IBM is that it's evolved, it's constantly changing, and there are so many different functions in IBM, business units, acquisitions, divestitures. So it's not like joining a monolithic, non-changing entity that you can do everything at a company like IBM. And there's lots of companies around like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, SAP, I've been here 18 years and uh, I have been fortunate enough to do many different things for sure, I understand. But again, that your little boy's limiting belief that money and uniform, not that important, they will not choose me, but actually your mom was right. They saw your potential and your intellect and smartness. So, I'm so glad <laughs> that your mom encouraged you to continue for that. And then now you became one of the probably most well known CPOs in the world, I would say. And of course, probably the biggest to spend. So, I'm very curious about how you became CPO. Walk me through a little bit on, like, in that 45 years, uh, when was the pivotal moment to come to procurement function?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, Sue. And, you know, when I started my career, I mentioned I did a master's degree in engineering. So I'm a chartered engineer and engineering is my background. So the evolution to procurement, is probably, you know, difficult to understand for some. Although I I would highlight to you, now I know a lot of CPOs, and actually there's a lot of CPOs who come from an engineering background, as well as finance and and Mm -hmm. other functions. My early career in IBM was in the engineering function, I then moved to manufacturing, I then moved into materials management, And one of my managers said to me, hey, Bob, you strike me as someone who would be really good at procurement and negotiating for IBM. I think you should try a spell in procurement. I said, okay, let's try a spell in procurement. And that's what happened. I applied for a job in a procurement function I actually was accepted. And after like one week of working in procurement, I thought, hey, this is really cool. I want to be the CPO. And it then became very clear to me that that was my objective. That's what I wanted to do. That's what I wanted to aspire to. And I have to say, you know, I've been doing procurement now for three decades. I've been the CPO since 2014 so it took me a while to get there so IBM's a big company but I got to the CPO And I have to say, I've enjoyed absolutely every minute of working inside the procurement.
0: Wow. So so many things to unpack on that, that last few decades as a CPO, all the things that you come through. Just before we're going in there, I just wanted to ask, when you got there, so did you start as a negotiator right away? What function did you start at?
1: That's a great question, because when I spoke to the hiring manager and told him I wanted to come to procurement, and he asked me about my skills, well, I didn't have any procurement skills so he said to me why do you think you'll be good at negotiation and procurement you don't have any skills he said I'll tell you what your skills are in engineering and in procurement we have to be cognizant of quality and suppliers quality performance and their engineering and services capability so let's start you out in that area and we'll assess how well you do in Mm -hmm. what with Suppliers. So I joined procurement, but it was procurement quality and engineering and management of those programs. So mm. I did that for about nine months. And then this manager said to me, hey, you're pretty good at this stuff. I've observed the way you handle these suppliers. I want you to take a bigger role in any movement in my commercial procurement responsibilities, which was fantastic
0: yeah so the lesson here is that you know we're all curious about how we navigate this big organization. IBM SAP, yes, there are opportunities, but it's not like a given. You kind of need to change, but it's so hard to prove, like show up, I can do this, nobody believes you. But you've found somehow transferable skills from engineering to quality, and then you become the expert in that, that help you to launch and prove yourself again.
1: And I talk to a lot of people about this because you know a lot of people want to develop their careers. Mm -hmm. And I think a fundamental requirement of developing your career is to be successful in what you're doing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Even mm-hmm. even if you're not liking it too much. I mean, if you really hate it, so you, you need to move and do something, right. Right. Right, right? But if you want to progress within a company or indeed in life, then you want to be successful at what you're doing. People recognise that. They'll give you more responsibility. Right. They'll become a bigger friend with you. Right. They, uh, so I would say a fundamental there is focus on what you're doing, show your team, show your bosses, show the world you can be highly competent and use that as a springboard to move into opportunity areas. Because what you're looking to do is for people to take a risk on you, because if you want to develop your skills in a new area, you're going to have to learn them because if you had them, you wouldn't need to develop a skills. <clears throat>
0: Right, absolutely. It's so true. Something to really think about for a lot of listeners and thinking about change and career or advancement career, or something to really mark on this song. Okay, now I wanted to ask a little bit about as a CPO. So, I mean, did they say you knew within a week you wanted to be a CPO? I guess you're a very intuitive guy. You just know what you want <laughs> or how did you why? Why did you want it to be a CPO right away? Like within a week, you couldn't possibly know exactly what CPO does every day. So why? Why did you want it to be a CPO?
1: Well, I think I love procurement and I did understand what the procure because I think another important thing is when you look to choose which job you want to move into is to research it to understand what skills are necessary to talk to people. to ne- So I talked to procurement people as I was preparing for the interview. Mm-hmm. You know, I researched what procurement teams were doing, what were the best procurement teams, what were the things I needed to do to be really prepared mm-hmm. for this interview. And I mean, for me, procurement are in a very unique position because they have massive External visibility through the suppliers that they interact with, and mm-hmm. they can bring an outside-in perspective to the mm-hmm. company. So you get to deal with stakeholders inside of the company, but more importantly, you know, in an IBM's case, tens of thousands of suppliers mm-hmm. all need capabilities in different industries, in different technologies. So what I would say is the diversity around procurement enticed me, made, you know, interested me, excited me, ignited me. So once I started doing procurement and getting involved in it, I'm like, okay, I want to do all the jobs that are in procurement and I want to go to be the CPO. And you know, I never changed from that. And that's because of how interesting it is and how much fun it can be. Don't get me wrong, it's also very challenging and there are lots of things as a CPO, you have to drive in initiatives and working with people. It's also a job where intense collaboration is needed. I mean we right. I mean, need people, you know, we want these suppliers to want to work with us and to bring us the best ideas and to help us to be successful. So to use a cliche, it's a win-win situation. They're looking to grow their business. We're looking to grow our business. They've got capabilities, knowledge, people, processes, products, services that we need to optimize us.
0: Right. It's actually, because SAP doesn't manufacture anything, so we don't have like that kind of supplier, except the indirect, of course, materials that we use in our offices and stuff. But I could think, like partner organization, that's how I actually met you, through the partner IBM and SAP. I can kind of relate that supplier relationship is actually partnership. And you know? also, you bring that external ecosystem into the company to bring that additional competitive advantage, So which means a lot of relationship and collaboration, people think. So you must have a really... Enjoy that part. Well, yeah, and I
1: would say, you know, for anyone who is maybe watching this, that the most important thing, not only in procurement, but in life, is relationships. Mm -hmm. We all know it can take years to make a relationship, and you can break a relationship like that. Right. So it takes a long time to build a relationship. You can easily destabilize or break a relationship and that also what makes it really really important as we build relationships work companies people you know industries institutions to work that relationship and in a relationship it's not all about what you want it's a two-sided thing because if it was all about what one side want that's not relationship that's right. a dictatorship <laughs>
0: right. that's right that's right that's true whether it is a marriage whether it is a friendship or a partnership or supplier relationship so true so maybe before we, i want to talk about a little bit of ibm and your experience throughout the 45 years and then just before we dive in in general what's the one thing that stands out in the procurement career that you feel like your team and yourself really create a contribution to ibm some example
1: Yeah, I mean, there are many big examples, but I mean, if you look across our supply base, we are very proud of our diversity across Mm -hmm. our suppliers, about our inclusiveness across our supply base, about, you know, IBM was the first company to get into the billion dollar club, which Mm -hmm. was spending a billion dollars with diverse suppliers and why is that important i mean i think now most companies are focused on that or understand that but we were a pioneer in IBM around doing that so i think that's really important to encourage you know women-owned companies minority-owned companies working with them when they weren't there i mean even you know, a couple of years ago, we started focusing on black owned companies post all the social unrest we had here in the US and what happened to George Floyd. And so I think leadership around helping the communities and societies in which we operate and the minority owned companies, not just in the US, but globally, to help them grow, develop, and be successful is really, really important for us.
0: That is a really interesting topic. And two things. One, how did you begin? Was that CPO's initiative top-down? Was it like somehow people came up with the program? Was it like even higher than CPO, CEO level? How did you pioneer that part, right? Because not everybody else was doing it, but you guys, you knew this was the right thing to do, but how did you even start? Well,
1: I think it's all of those things that you said. You need the engagement and buy-in of the senior leadership and we had that in IBM. And we had, you know, if you look at IBM's history and that's why I say we are one of the best companies in the world, you know, IBM has been around for over a hundred years and we have been pioneers in a lot of different fields, including equality, fair pay, irrespective of gender. So IBM has always been socially aware and always at the forefront of doing the right thing. And so Mm -hmm. that is in our DNA. Mm -hmm. And, you know, growing suppliers for the betterment of not just IBM, but for the suppliers is really important to us. And nowadays, by the way, when we deal with clients, you know, a lot of clients will say, you need to show us that you practice diversity, inclusion Mm -hmm. in your supply, with your supply base, but also within IBM. So you cannot make that happen unless you have a village working with you. It can't just be one person, the CPO or the procurement team, because you need the buy-in of the different business units. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a risk on these suppliers. These suppliers maybe cost a little bit more money, but we're going to develop them. They're going to do the right thing for us. They're going to be a great, source of diversity to help us with what we want to get done.
0: Right, right. It's like almost company culture. And like you said, it's in DNA, which is really important. I'm curious about the global aspect because I hear from different CPOs from Europe versus the North America, d definition a bit different. Europe seems to be more focusing on SME or local, bi-local, like helping their own community of course, in the US, we have a lot of social issues and the race and gender, we can actually spell it out and focus on it. So in IBM, being a global company as a global CPO, how do you manage this d D&I differences?
1: Yeah, I think we have one team who manages it globally, a centralized team. Mm-hmm. And we have, you know, our sourcing folks around the world who are working with the local teams, the local suppliers, the country suppliers, the geography suppliers, and I mean, they're focused on what is and what are going to be our minority-defined suppliers of the future. And as you know, the definition in some countries is different. So we have a global definitions that we follow, and we actually, you know, like to make sure that they are accredited as minority suppliers and so mm-hmm. we check that and we work with the different institutions and organizations that actually record minority affiliation. So mm-hmm. it's different in different countries and in some countries it's more let me call it difficult than others from you know the India's to the mm-hmm. Eastern Europe. but. We have a global program. I'd say the U.S. is the most mature program and the most developed, but we have scaled that to be global and we focus on global diversity.
0: Awesome. Okay, so tell me the second one you were going to say.
1: I'm gonna say that one of the, you know, as a procurement practitioner, One of the things that gives us greatest value is to help other companies with their procurement processes. And we've grown a massive procurement organisation that supports clients all around the world. And we do elements of their sourcing process, not just sourcing, operation, accounts payable, finance. We do that as a business process outsourcing offering and we've got very many big clients i won't say them all here for confidentiality reasons (laughs) because i haven't checked with them i could say that but you know we've got a massive list of clients and you know to me that's kind of the testimony to your value as when as a procurement team you can do procurement and they will pay you money to do procurement for them So you
0: actually create a business within IBM that uh, by just sharing your best practice, best practice.
1: Rather than being a service provider, Mm -hmm. we aim a value creator, generating revenue and profit for the IBM company around our procurement BPO practice.
0: Wow. Your title should be more than CPO. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> that is awesome okay so let's talk about ibm because like you say it's the most iconic innovation research companies in the world i think you guys own the most patent in the world and you always work on the next big thing right like quantum computing yeah. and stuff so i mean not to mention that let's remind ourselves that you guys did the watson and all the other ai cool things okay so over the course of 45 years and the company definitely has gone through many many different transformations and changes so what were some of the impactful transformations you have witnessed and that shaped the current state of the company? I'm just curious, like it's a history lesson here. And then in comparison now, how does current IBM look like from your perspective?
1: That's a great question. And I can probably talk for about <laughs> right. one subject. But IBM, I mentioned this earlier, is constantly changing. And, you know, as Wayne Gretzky said, he would go to where the puck is going Right. And I think that just kind of symbolizes for me, IBM. So if you look right now and you listen to our current CEO, Arvind, and he talks about the IBM strategy, you know, we've evolved from what was a hardware centric company. We moved into software and services mm-hmm. company. Mm-hmm. And now we've been transitioning. We acquired Red Hat into what we call a hybrid cloud and now AI, artificial intelligence mm-hmm. and quantum computing. So if you kind of trace back IBM's history, we actually started many, many years ago and IBM actually made purely hardware products and cheese slicers and then we went and punch card readers. And then if you look at what IBM did with the IBM mainframe, I mean, that was massively complex. And look, that mainframe has been around for over 50 years and now is the kernel of most of what the world's applications, banking systems, airlines, insurance companies are running on. It's consistently been improved and innovated upon. Our most latest mainframe has every instruction is encrypted for security with all of what's going on in cyber security. So anyway, you can tell that I can get uh, a lot of that stuff. So I think innovative companies need to keep transforming themselves. And you know, IBM's divested a lot of our businesses and we've acquired a lot of new businesses Mm -hmm. and that's how you stay relevant and that's Mm -hmm. how you ensure longevity as a company over a century of history.
0: Mm, Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, It's amazing to know that you actually lived through and then I witnessed this coolest innovation transformations and all that. But currently, as a CPO, what do you manage then in terms of spend in IBM? I'm curious, what is the spend like?
1: (laughs) Well, the spend, I mentioned we do procurement for IBM. We also do it for, you know, a lot of other companies. And so our pocketbook. It's very big and what we actually manage and touch and, you know, through operations, sourcing and all of the spectrum of what we do, it's over 400 billion dollars. Wow. As we grow the number, we become more relevant with our suppliers. We can bring more value and revenue to them. When we do that, we become obviously more important to them. And that's, you know, a kind of bi-directional relationship and synergy that is really important for us and for the supply base.
0: And I'm really going back to the DI topic because it's really definitely why I actually love procurement is that you guys can definitely use that spending power for the good.
1: Yeah, we want to spend wisely and we want to be cognizant of sustainability and how we are operating. You know, we want to make sure we're conforming to all the laws. I'm sure you and the other procurement professionals see the explosion of legislation around the world in every area on recyclability, on sustainability, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. environmental, on codes of conduct, on data slavery acts. I mean, the legislation is just exploding, and clearly. The role of procurement, which we haven't gotten into yet, has just become wider and wider and wider as companies realize all of the challenges we have from diversity and inclusion, to sustainability, to legislation, protecting the brand name of IBM and SAP, protecting our company's brand reputation, the amount of risks that we're dealing with, geopolitical risk, climatic risk, financial risk, all of these political risks. You have all of these risks and the the procurement team are front and center on to protect the company. It's a very demanding, but very rewarding. Right, right.
0: That's exactly what's happening, especially after pandemic, everybody talks about supply chain and disruption. So this is why procurement is even more important. Now, I'm curious, how do you change your strategy or adapt to be more resilient? What's your perspective on managing all different categories or areas where you spend money? Since you've been here so many years, decades of procurement, you probably saw different things. The trend of, I guess, procurement when it comes to strategic area like sourcing or category management evolving, right? So I want to hear your perspective on that last 20 years. How has it evolved in terms of category management?
1: Well, I think one thing I'd say is that it really nowadays is all about data and data management and taking that data and making the data give you insights, whether it's category management, risk and category management includes risk sourcing, all of the different aspects of procurement, value, competitiveness. It's all about data. If we're going to do category management correctly, we want to be having the most competitive product. To know it's the most competitive product, we need to know what are the benchmarks by which we're applying that to. Not just the suppliers that we're dealing with. But all of the suppliers that are in an industry, how do we ensure we're getting the best value for money? We call it an IBM fair value a fair value for what we're actually purchasing. And I think people now say data is the new oil. And I think that the explosion of data and you know, SAP, ERP, Ariba, Concur, you guys are experts at this. I mean, you have the systems that contain all of that data and you know companies like IBM and all the different companies that use your systems some of us are really good at the data and the taxonomy of the data others may be less so so you have to take that data you have to cleanse that data you have to make sure it reflects what you're actually buying you then have to use that to develop your strategies of what you're going to actually manage through category management what you say, hey, this category of spend, we call it tail spend, where we don't have the bandwidth and we don't see the value. So we should outsource, give that to somebody else, not focus so much on that, maybe put it in a marketplace so that that spend can be managed that way so that we can be much more effective in what we actually manage in category management, in detail, in sourcing, in negotiations and driving value for our companies. So I think I'd say out of distilling out of that data, architecture, management, structure, analytical insights and outcomes that matter for the company is what we really see as the big transformative ideas here that's going to propel us to the next stage.
0: So you said data is new oil. I guess you meant that that is a resource. It's like oil used to be like fuel, right? Fuel, that's what fuel. it means, to a fuel, right? Okay, so then who owns that data?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's an interesting subject. In the IBM world, I mean, the data, I think, is owned by the people who create the data and the companies who create the data. And the data sovereignty is owned by them. And so we have to be very careful about how we use that data. We have to ensure we respect confidentialities and we have to make sure we treat it that way. But obviously inside IBM, we have a lot of data. If I look from a procurement perspective, around what we spend, who we spend it with, the data that we get from you know, freely available sources and benchmarking information. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of data that's in the public that can be gotten by procurement teams or anyone else. So, so there's different ownership categories of data. And what we want to do is take all of that and distill it into a data strategy and a data understanding and a data knowledge, and by the way, we also want to share that with everyone in the enterprise. You know, in in IBM right now, we've got something that's called Enterprise Performance Management, where we're taking all of the data and making it visible, we call it on the glass, so that our professionals and our leaders and our managers have the data at their fingertips and the insights and the AI applied to that data to help them make decisions real time that are informed versus using their guts or using what they believe that data was saying. So getting the data to be available, getting the data to be real, to be live, to be real time, to enable better business performance is what I am talking about there.
0: Right. So there is a follow-up question to this. data. Let's say sustainability, we want to do better and we want to reduce the emission from supply chain. And we need to collaborate with the suppliers and the data have to come from them, especially you can demand them. But how do you deal with that kind of data? Can you just ask the supplier to share? And do you trust the data? Is that your role to collect them or is there some other better way to do it?
1: Well, I think that's a a really good question. And as you know, so this is a kind of new area. And actually in sustainability and in greenhouse gas emissions and carbon on the invoice has been talked about. Like price, you know, how much we pay for someone is pretty universal. There's different currencies and it's easily measured. For this pen, how many dollars does that cost? But if we ask for this pen... What's the scope one, scope two and scope three emissions generated for a pen? Or, you know, and what's the greenhouse gas emissions? You know, how many tonnes did it take to make? That's not there yet. And we've got, you know, standards out there about how we should measure that and what we do. But that's a very nascent industry. So I think it's evolving and we've got a lot of companies around who are measuring these things. I think we as procurement teams have a role here with our suppliers to collect and ensure that they have the data that we need to make the decisions. And there are companies who can help us, EcoVadis to name one, but there are many different companies that we work with who are collecting data, who are collecting data on carbon, who are looking at ESG and assessing people Lots of different companies doing that. So I think our supply base and our suppliers have the responsibility. And in fact, one of the things we like to have with our suppliers is they have strategies around sustainability and around ESG and around scope one, two and three and around greenhouse gas emissions. So I think we want to have policies that our suppliers are socially aware mm-hmm. and Social impact aware and are demonstrating progression and can demonstrate that to us and can metricise it, i.e., have actual palpable metrics around the number of tons that they've avoided, etc. So, I think that one. As I say, we're still working on and I think that's going to take a little bit of time here before we get to like, okay, you know, I buy this pen. What is the number that we have here? What's the carbon number for this? What are the different emissions? We're not there yet. So we're on a journey. Right, understanding that and different governments are grappling with that and you know it's everywhere you know I was actually over in London at the World Procurement Conference and I was seeing that next year depending on what type of vehicle you have you will and will not be allowed to drive in certain parts of the country if you have a vehicle that's not conforming to the latest standards of emissions, you can't go there. So mm-hmm. there's legislation evolving and then there's how do you track that and measure it and how do you work with it. That is a fascinating subject, sir. That it we spend a whole podcast on.
0: That is so true. Fascinating. That's exactly what we talk a lot about think tank. And I'm so excited, by the way. Thank you for joining our services think tank and really want to see how we can pioneer all that area together. On that note, of course, I have to ask you what's your perspective on opportunities for SAP? And it's customers together, like IBM and many big companies, to leverage this common business network and maybe to improve the sustainability or maybe just to do better with the data. Whatever that is, what do you think is opportunity in?
1: I think the opportunity is massive. And I think like we talked about, I believe data is the new oil. And let's face it, your systems have all that data in there. Now we talked about who owns the data and data sovereignty and the right to use that data and confidentiality. So all of those things we have to be very cognizant of. But I think the opportunity is massive going forward here. And the opportunity to apply analytics and AI and probabilistic outcomes is enormous. And I think, you know, a lot of people get worried about that AI is gonna eliminate a lot of what people do today. But a lot of what people do today is highly transactional and manual, and that's not what they want to be doing. We want to be doing higher level value add creation, value creation, innovation, focused on sustainability, focused on the environment, focused on doing good collaborative efforts That's why we want to be applying our brain power, not on transactional activities. So I think, coming back to your question, we need to be applying technology, we need to be applying AI, we need to be applying insights to make people's life a lot easier, straight through processing on workflows to free people up to do all of these things that we really need to be focused on diversity, inclusion, sustainability, risk mitigation, resiliency, planning, et cetera.
0: I can see another 20 years ahead that you will be so excited about every single day trying to do all this (laughs) and pioneer and really help the planet and people. So that said, like when you're looking back, 45 years of success, sometimes maybe you pause and you probably think about it like how. Why, why me? Like, yeah, maybe my mom was right, but maybe they saw my potential and all. But still, you're really the lucky one who was selected. So now you had this great run. And do you ever think about why you're one of the kids chosen and why, meaning it's like the true, maybe bigger purpose and how far you've come since then? And then what do you think purpose of life at this point?
1: Well, I'd say a couple of things there, So It's a privilege to be in the position I am in. And I, you know, thank God every day of where I've ended up and my mum who guided me and all of the managers I've had who've given me, you know, guidance, help. So I think where I am is a lot of my attitude, which is never give up, always work hard always strive to learn, be inquisitive, ask questions, curiosity, hard work. But you need guidance, you need help, Mm -hmm. and you need a little bit of luck as well to aspire. But, you know, there's a very famous golfer, and he says, the more I practice, the luckier I get. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true. So we have to be out there learning, reading talking, networking, understanding, thinking. You know, IBM's motto once was think. I think it's really, really important that we think. We step back and we think. And so I'm privileged to be where I am. I think many people have helped me. And I think that's a two way street because I think if you're looking for people who help you, you need to help them. So I think we're always wanting to be thinking about not what can I get out of this, but how can I help that other person? How can I help change things for the better? How can I look at this in a way that's not one-sided? We talked earlier about win-win relationships. We want other people to be thinking about us suppliers, our employees our clients everybody that we deal with our partners the ecosystem to be thinking hey how can we make ibm better and greater and the way to be doing that is that they're part of that success so it has to be a win-win relationship
0: you mentioned once to me it's all about self-mastery like you knew what you want to be and you master yourself and you got there, how can other procurement professionals and leaders work to master themselves and also create positive change? So what's your advice to them?
1: Yeah, I think partially we've covered some of that, but I can talk to my team about three C's. One being capable. I think we need to understand our profession. I think we need to study it. I think we need to learn what's happening across the procurement spectrum of activities. There are lots of ways to do that. There are lots of different institutions, ISM, procurement leaders, you know, lots of other forums where we can learn what are best practices in procurement. We need to become the main experts and leaders and knowledge experts. We need to do negotiation classes. We need to practice negotiation. We need to become highly competent and Mm -hmm. experts at what we do and gain the aptitude of our profession. I also think we need to be curious. In procurement, we need to ask questions. We need to say, why are we doing things that way? So Mm -hmm. we need to be asking our businesses and our suppliers our stakeholders why do we do that a lot of things have been done the same way for a long time too it's because that's the way it's done so i think part of our role in procurement is why why are we doing that curiosity why can't we do it this way how do we eliminate that step we have right now in ibm we're focused on you know Elimination of activities that are not needed. If we can't eliminate something, can we simplify it? And if we can simplify it, then automate it. So mm-hmm. I think having the curiosity to, to ask these questions and challenge the status quo is really important. And I also think to be able to do these first two Cs, we need to be confident in ourselves. So we need to take risks. We need to be confident. We need to be able to challenge So we need to be able to say, hey, I know you told me to do it this way. How about doing it that way? Confidence. So I'd say... A combination of those three c's with a couple of other c's thrown in there
0: right 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 you know actually i, I also talk about three c's my three c's are a bit different but def, definitely confidence they're capable i, I like compassion <laughs> but they're definitely good c words but those are excellent you're right and curiosity I, that's, that's especially
1: a, that's a great c we should change it and add a 14, <laughs> which is compassion because i think compassion and understanding empathy and our impact and how we work with people and motivate them and make them feel part of the team okay great podcast now we have four
0: c's (laughs) i love it i love it (laughs) okay so we have so many other things to cover but almost an hour is up so we will wrap it up but before we end is there anything else you want to share any message or call to action for business leaders or any professionals in supply chain and procurement domain?
1: Yeah. The main thing I would say is we need to have fun in what we're doing and we need to create a climate where people feel confident enough, they get the compassion to be supported, to be able to excel in what they are doing. So let's all focus on making a, there's a fifth seat, a climate that's (laughs) conducive, to making all of our teams great and allowing them all to be all they want to be. And mm-hmm. that's our jobs as leaders. And encourage risk-taking, encourage innovation, encourage creativity, and
0: support our people. I think I want to come and work for you. <laughs> awesome. All right, so we're going to always end with I am optimistic, that, 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 So maybe finish this sentence, I am optimistic.
1: The world will continue to evolve and grow and be a better place every day.
0: Yes, (laughs) feels so good. Thank you so much, Bob. This was amazing. Wow, we didn't actually talk about your yoga, but (laughs) next time.
1: (laughs) Next time. We'll do another one, then we'll get into more depth. But no, that was very good. So thank Thank you, and I'll speak to you soon, Sue. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Industry Leader's Journey. This series is produced by the industry value chain team at SAP, where we are committed to making the world run better and improving people's lives. For more information and to access all of our podcasts, find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Ariba.com.